Hey there, podcast listeners. We strive to bring you not just quality discussion each week, but quality sound as well. This week, we had a little trouble with our internet connection, so you'll notice that the audio quality starts to fade toward the middle of the podcast. It's still very listenable, but I apologize if you notice it, and we'll be back to normal next week. Thanks. For the week of July 11th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media, coming to you from Washington, D.C. As always, I'm joined by my voracious co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions and Jigger Shah of Jigger Shah Consulting. Uh, how's everybody doing after the 4th of July weekend? Catherine, you're back in D.C. this week after a vacation where I understand you were doing a little space center exploration with your family. Yeah, we discovered uh, while we were at Chincoteague Island that Wallops has a NASA flight facility there, and it's just really fascinating. It's so cool to see that there's still great science going on out there. Absolutely. And Jigger, no exploration for you there in New York, but I know you're doing a lot on New York State solar policy. Uh, We were talking a little bit about that. Can you give us a taste of what you're working on? Yeah, I mean, as you know, the the cost of solar has come down so far that – the state of New York is trying to figure out what to do with its uh, solar policy to uh, to respond to make sure that the money stretches farther. So it's an interesting conversation, to say the least. Mm. Well, we have neither solar nor rocket ships on the agenda today, but we do have a good lineup of stories for discussion. So let's get right into it. First, we're going to talk about whether the U.S. is improving its energy efficiency. The obvious answer is yes. But how much it's improving depends on how we look at it. So we'll look at it from a variety of angles. Then last week, we discussed some dismal business and trade news coming out of China. But this week, we'll talk about a glimmer of hope in U.S.-China relations. Could a climate agreement between the two countries be on the table? And finally, after the president seemingly called on people to divest from fossil fuels in his recent climate speech, people have been buzzing about divestment. The movement has been growing, but is it really effective? We'll debate. And then, of course, we'll tell you something you don't know to wrap up the show. Okay, on to our first topic. ACEEE is out with a new study assessing U.S. performance in energy efficiency. It's no surprise that America is improving. Uh, There are 15 indicators here ranging from ratepayer-funded efficiency programs, which dominate U.S. efficiency efforts, to freight transportation. Uh, And in five categories, we're doing really well. But there are some other categories like combined heat and power, public transportation, and state-level efficiency targets where we've stalled or actually gone backward. But, you know, amidst this, there's no doubt that America is getting more efficient. I think that's that's obvious. Um, ACEEE released this other report a few months back showing that efficiency accounted for around 75% of demand for economic services since 1970, while energy production accounted for only 25%. And, um, in America, we spent around $570 billion on efficiency improvements economy-wide in 2010, while only $170 billion was spent on energy production. So when we look at all this, where does this put us? We have some conflicting things, again, depending on how you look at the efficiency of the U.S. economy. What are we to make of all this? Jigger, when you look at all these indicators that I just laid out, what do you see? Well, I think what I see is that mandates work. 
right? So from building codes to appliance standards, in areas where we've actually created floors for efficiency, we have done amazingly well. Even with cars where we have cafe standards, things are improving based on that. Um, but in places where you have voluntary uh, programs like combined heat and power, we've been lagging behind. Yeah, and it's been proven, absolutely agree, it's been proven that you know, standards are really cheap to do. It's really inexpensive to do this from a from a government and taxpayer standpoint, and yet we reap enormous benefits, and and it really moves innovation. So it it actually creates a market for more innovative technologies. Um, this re- what strikes me in this report is that we still have a lot of low hanging fruit that we should be able to deal with. The combined heat and power thing is, to me, is tragic that we haven't been able to capitalize more on that because that is just an enormous opportunity for for our industry to become more efficient, for our entire country to become more efficient um, and less dependent on on fossils. Um, one of the things that that I think we could note, though, that's positive, and it's not even necessarily from this report, but that that people are starting to embed practices into their whole that corporate sustainability isn't just becoming an adder; that it's becoming part of the way um, corporations do business. And so, I think that that's sort of an upside to this. But you know the the thing, Catherine, that shocked me was I don't know if you saw that news story that came out last week about how um, combined heat and power was trying to uh, get new legislation through that would give it loan guarantees. When you and I both know that the big problem with combined heat and power is that utility companies hate it and have really punitive standby charges at the local level that make combined heat and power less cost effective. Yeah, and they honestly don't have a huge sort of support base. Um, so there are not a lot of people kind of walk in the halls of Congress on this. Honestly, it's not a very, um, you know, sexy new issue. It's been around forever. It's something that's tried and true, and yet we're not doing it. So beyond combined heat and power, there are a lot of positive in- indicators. And I think in the built environment, generally, we're seeing some really interesting things. Uh, Ed Masria of Architecture 2030 had an analysis recently in which he looked at uh, projections for energy consumption in the U.S. through 2030 and the amount of square footage uh, that of buildings that America was going to build. And he found that, you know, building energy consumption continues its steep decline through 2030, even though the U.S. plans to add over 60 billion square feet of new buildings by then. So what we see are that you know, on the edges, we don't need to build any new power plants to service the amount of buildings that we'll be constructing over the next two decades or so. And I find that to be an extraordinarily positive trend. Um, However, on the other end of the spectrum, we spend $400 billion a year to power our our homes and commercial buildings, uh, representing 40% of the nation's CO2 emissions. And we've barely scratched the surface in terms of the amount of investments that we could be making to cut that power bill. But this is, I mean, I think this goes to the heart of what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is that when you think about this report and you think about where we want to go as a society in terms of climate goals and other things, and you think about the fact that like in New York, NYSERDA raises $800 million a year in in money off of people's electricity bills to invest in energy efficiency. And that's true across the country. And so you probably have billions of dollars of money set aside just for energy efficiency. What should we use that money for, right? I mean, what 
what technologies can be catalyzed such that the private marketplace can take over at some point and what technologies after 35 years of doing these retrofits you know just never seem to take off unless the subsidies are super rich yeah so you don't think that the energy efficiency programs on the city and utility level have been effective is that what you're saying well, I mean, effectiveness is, you know, a complicated thing. I think when they do their analysis, they show that the money they spent, you know, generated um, electricity savings at a cost of like four cents a megawatt hour. So, I mean, everyone pats themselves on the back. But the real question is, if we're trying to um, combat climate change at speed and scale and talk about the, you know, the 40 percent of carbon emissions from our existing plant infrastructure and try to figure out how to um, – uh, how to retire 70,000 plus megawatts worth of coal early. You've got EPA actions on one side, but then on the other side, you could actually do a lot more energy efficiency. So, you know, part of what we talked about a few weeks ago is continuous commissioning for buildings and using big data, which gives you even more bang for your buck. But also, there's just other technologies that are coming about nowadays where things like benchmarking buildings, just benchmarking buildings against each other, and there's like Honest Buildings and Noesis and a few other companies doing that stuff, saves 2 to 3% of the energy consumed just by you know the raw competition of having your building benchmarked. Yeah, but I would just say that this is not – we don't need to just do efficiency because that's not going to deal with the peaker problem because when we reach those peaks in New York City in the summer and they're firing up the big dirty generators to accommodate that, there's no amount of light bulb replacement or building commission, commissioning that's going to do anything for that. We got we to gotta come in with some other technologies, with some um, peak reducing technologies, whether it's – or demand response, but it's not going to all be able to be done with energy efficiency. Well, that's absolutely, absolutely. correct. And and that's where demand response comes in, as you said. That's where peaking technologies like solar are, are definitely very useful. I was at the town meeting on demand response yesterday, heard from a variety of panelists, regulators, demand response providers. And, you know, they, they all made it very clear that in demand response, they're trying to bring together the energy efficiency, energy management, demand response and all these technologies around the margin, margins like electric vehicles, solar, other distributed technologies, and kind of bring them together into one service offering. Uh, in California, I know that in their loading order, they've put demand response, energy efficiency, and renewables at the top. And uh, you know, other states are considering the same thing. And so I completely agree that energy efficiency can't be looked at as this single solution, that it needs to be applied with all these other technologies. Because when we look at it, the information technologies enabling them, bringing them all together, puts them into one package itself. And that, to me, as I report on the energy efficiency industry more, is one of the central drivers. The use of information technology to blend these different once discrete areas together into a full-service solution. Stephen, you're exactly right. That's what's different today from four years ago, is that the information technology solutions to actually knit all these things together to actually create an alternative vision for how we run the grid was just sort of an academic paper four years ago. Today, you've got a number of companies who've actually created service offerings that utilities could use to theoretically replace a coal plant. 
Yeah, which which means that you're looking at it from a more systemic view rather than from a technology by technology point of view. So we can't have this discussion around efficiency here in the U.S. without talking about the skeptics and the antics in Congress. Uh, we had another WTF moment this week as uh, Republicans passed a budget that slashed energy efficiency programs. Uh, Texas Republican Congressman Michael Burgess once again proposed language in the uh, energy and water spending bill to stop light bulb standards from going forward. You know, we've gone through this so many times before. Catherine, I know that you're always watching Congress with an eye on these particular programs. What is going on here? Uh, And particularly, why is it relevant in light of the conversation we're having around the importance of standards and the progress that we're seeing? Yeah, it's getting hot in town. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> silly this stuff season. about, yeah, it totally is silly season, um, you know, where people are saying you can't have ceiling fan efficiencies, you know, this is the government in your bedroom kind of thing. It's it, it's ridiculous because standards, as I, as we were talking about, are cheap, they're easy to implement, and, and they have huge results and they help the public. They actually help the taxpayer quite a bit. Oh, what it, what happened in the House yesterday is they passed energy and water appropriations bill, as you mentioned. Um, ten amendments were offered to restore funding to efficiency and renewables um, or the ARPA-E program, all of which failed. Only one amendment passed that added about $20 million back to Ar- the ARPA-E program that does just sort of cutting-edge research. Um, and the interesting thing when you look at the breakdown of the votes where only nine Republicans crossed over um, – to vote against the bill, and only eight Democrats voted for the bill. Now, the last time they did this vote on um, energy and water appropriations in the last cycle, um, there were 70 people who crossed over on both sides to vote different ways. And what this says is this is even more polarized than it ever has been. Um, And I would just look at this bill as really more like a campaign document. I mean, all this stuff is just red meat for the right wing. It's not governing. It's just giving them talking points. Um, It's not something the president is going to sign. I mean, the Senate bill looks completely different. Um, So... You know, I think that unfortunately, again, this is a posture and, um, you know, they do want to cut the budget, but they're certainly focusing on the technologies that could actually be the most beneficial, both both environmentally and economically. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, it is a posturing bill. The president has said that he would veto uh, some of these bills that have been passed by the House or House committees and uh it looks like we'll probably have another continuing resolution rather than pass a budget. Would you say that that's the case? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah they yeah. will have a continuing resolution. You know, another thing that happened um, this week was on Energy and Commerce, the Energy and Power Subcommittee um, was marking up something called the Energy Consumers Relief Act. And basically what this does is it puts DOE in charge of re- reviewing EPA regulations um, and their impact on energy and fuel prices. And it says if it's ad- adverse to the economy in any way, then the EPA is not allowed to move forward with that regulatory piece. Um, So what that did was, you know, two things that put DOE in veto 
power over EPA, but it also absolutely did not account for any benefits that would occur from the regulatory. So it didn't account for any health benefits. Um, and, you know, someone offered an amendment to try to, to put those back into it, which failed. Um, so this is happening, you know, from everywhere from the, you know, subcommittee level all the way to the floor. Um, I will say, because I always have to be positive, two bills have been presented to the president on energy that are going to get signed, which one is a small hydro bill and one is an electricity ownership bill. They're very regionally focused and they're really small. But so they're little things that are getting through. Um, and hydropower seems to have more bipartisan support than than almost any other energy you know, resource. But now that said, it's it's looking pretty grim overall for the budget. So speaking of Congress, you know, that body's inability to act on a climate bill is one of the reasons we've seen so much tension in international climate talks, particularly among developing countries that want to see the U.S. commit to carbon targets before they enter binding commitments themselves. This stalemate is uh, particularly bad with China, but we may have a ray of hope between America and China beaming out of this week's strategic and economic dialogue taking place here in Washington. Uh, the two countries have agreed to a climate change working group, which will focus on reducing HFCs and black carbon and focus on five new areas to enhance China's climate efforts, uh, including carbon capture and storage, building efficiency, greenhouse gas data collection, uh, the smart grid, and vehicle mileage standards. So I'm really torn on the significance of this. I definitely do not want to overplay it. Um, I want to share my thoughts, but I'm eager to hear if any of you think that this is a big deal at all. I mean, the press has been all over it, saying it's a you know positive step in climate and energy talks between the two countries. Does anyone see it that way? You know, look, I, I think it's always good to see the U.S. and China, which the press release from the State Department even mentions the fact that combined they use 40 percent of the world's cold coal. So, I mean, it is a good thing that these two big superpowers are are um, are getting together on this issue. But, you know, my sense is, is that I thought the DOE was already working with China in all five of these areas under Stephen Chu. So I'm just trying to figure out what's new here. Uh, that's exactly what my thought was. It, just like the president's climate plan, this is sort of a repackage, a rehash of what the DOE and other agencies are doing. I, I will say that this is why I'm not terribly enthusiastic about this plan. I, it's another way for the U.S. to take what it's done domestically with this recent climate announcement and apply that to international talks and say, hey, we're moving on something. We can realize some movement, even though multilateral talks have slowed down and have been bogged down for a long time. And this is actually why I do think that there's some significance in this announcement, because over the years we've seen very little progress in multilateral talks through the UN process. And it's going to take a lot more unilateral action between individual countries working on technology transfers, um, figuring out best practices for uh, climate adaptation and mitigation, uh, working on voluntary commitments based upon what the other country is doing. And that seems to be the way that we can actually get some real action before, you know, this next five year period where we start talking about global binding commitments, which, you know, quite frankly, I'm skeptical about any positive action coming from. 
Yeah, and Stephen, the interesting thing is the working group is going to develop their, this U.S.-China working group is going to develop their implementation plan by October of this year. So we're going to see pretty quickly what's going on. I think the good thing is, you know, it was always like, I'll show you, will you show me yours if I show you mine? And now it's like, oh, we're going to do this together. Here are all the things we're doing together, even if the U.S. is just saying this is what we've been doing. At least then we can see what China says as to what they've been doing in these same sectors. Um, this is also a little bit ironic because today the U.S. District Court is listening to the, um, you know, the CFIUS blocked Rawls Corporation, um, went the four wind projects that were stopped in Oregon, um, where the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. said that the Rawls Corporation, a Chinese-backed company, could not purchase those four wind projects. And they're listening to that in U.S. District Court today. So it'll be kind of interesting to see the outcome of that um, as, as we're looking at trying to work more closely together on clean energy. Well, I think there's a there's a number of these issues. So, like you know, this week, Michael Schellenberger and uh, and crew at the Breakthrough Institute, which I don't, you know, I, as many people know, I don't really care for, um, made a really good point around the fact that we're continuing to burn more coal. So the Washington Post talked about it, et cetera. That China itself only has um, a uh, a goal of capping its coal consumption to 3.9 billion tons a year by 2015. It's not yet a mandate. Um, to to limit its it, it to really figure out a way to level off its increase in emissions, um, which is um, which is a big problem, and you don't see that in this agreement. And the other thing is that yesterday the Europeans announced that they've made huge amount of progress with the Chinese on getting rid of these tariffs um, for solar, where the Chinese at least made a good faith. Um, step where they they said they're not going to put tariffs on EU polysilicon uh, that gets imported into the um, into China and um, and it looks like they're coming up with you know some semblance of a a total cap of total megawatts that can be imported into Europe plus a price floor but what's amazing to me there is the U.S. has been completely silent about this I mean they're not even saying that they are inclined to. Uh, come on board with whatever the EU and China agrees to. Yeah, so I haven't talked to anyone who is close to the negotiations on the U.S. side. uh, Have you had conversations with folks? I mean, what's the sense that you get on why the U.S. isn't engaging in the same way? Do you have a sense? They have no mandate from the White House to do so. I mean, this is the thing that shocks me. Is it like, you know, yesterday I was talking to one of the guys who is getting a private letter ruling from the IRS for the uh, REITs and MLP stuff. And all of that stuff has been shut down. The White House is not moving any of that stuff forward in the same way that they're not really providing any guidance to uh, folks on, you know, on whether they should add on to or 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 start a separate negotiation with China on a multilateral or bilateral solution on these trade tariffs for clean energy. I just I I find it maddening that they're repackaging old programs from DOE under Stephen Chu and now, you know, and are, are leaving unaddressed all these other areas like a cap on total coal uh, usage in China, which China still has not made a cap out of, or some of these trade issues. I just think that that's such a difficult conversation to have, particularly as the U.S. is trying to make its way in here, seem like a positive player, try to cooperate with China, and perhaps reach some sort of deal on binding commitments. That's the only reason I can see why the U.S. isn't coming down harder. And quite frankly, we haven't passed any sort of legislation that would price carbon or put a 
cap on the amount of coal that we're going to burn. You know, with this these EPA regulations coming up. Well, that, that's that, not. Well, why not? I mean, yeah, the EPA see, regulations. Not quite fair, right? Well, why why is I that mean, not I'm fair? Just that, like, I mean, the, the president actually did say he's going to cap coal, right? I the mean, president said what EPA he would. Regulations is right. I mean, the. But, the Chinese say that they're serious about climate, too, and the president says he's going to do this, but it depends on the regulatory wheels in motion and whether or not this was actually going to happen. So I think that they're trying to cooperate with one another until there's actually something to talk about, and then you can start making these more serious demands. I don't know. I think the U.S. has done a lot, though. I mean, already, if you look at what the Sierra Club's doing and others, we're projecting 70,000 megawatts of coal that will be decommissioned in the United States because of, forget the EPA greenhouse gas rules. I mean, the MAC rules from last year, you know, are making it more expensive to burn coal just from a, you know, cleaning up the emissions perspective. Yeah, and we have a path to do it. You can see our path to, to get that done. But with China, I mean, their their grid is in such a different place than ours, and their demand is only going to be growing exponentially. So they're in a completely different place. It would be nice for the U.S. to show leadership in a way that was, sure, maybe soft, but still real. Like, you know, when you reissue this press release, say, the goal of this technology collaboration is to help China cap its coal usage to 3.9 billion you know, tons per year by 2015 and then lead it to go down after that. That just seems to me such a politically unviable option when you consider how that sounds from the Chinese perspective. The U.S. is going to come in and help China cap their carbon when the Chinese haven't even created that goal themselves. So I see that as a potential on the table when the U.S., you know, as talks go forward. But right now, it just seems to be a cooperative agreement so that they can feel good about things as they move into more serious multilateral talks rather than sort of heavy-handed, seemingly heavy-handed approach from the U.S., which I don't think is quite viable at this point in time. So then this will bring us into the third part of our discussion, which I, <laughs> I, I think uh, Jigger will have some serious opinions on, too, and about whether the president is providing leadership. And this is on divestment. So the president recently gave climate advocates a boost when, in his climate speech, he called on people to divest. Although he didn't say to divest from fossil fuels explicitly, we can presume that that's what he meant when he made that call at the end of his speech. So over the last year, we've seen a growing movement led by 350.org to get people to divest from fossil fuels in order to, according to environmentalist Bill McKibben, strip the social license of fossil fuel companies. And the campaign is modeled after the divestment campaign in the 80s that put pressure on colleges and universities in in the U.S. to pull money out of South Africa to end apartheid. Um you know, this, the strategy was credited with with helping put an end to the country's apartheid system. And environmental, environmental groups want to characterize fossil fuel companies in the same way. So is this the right way to go about it? Uh, was the president right to, to back it? Jigger, I know you have strong thoughts on this. Um, you're not a big fan on what the fossil fuel divestment campaign folks are doing. Yeah, I mean, I just... Yeah, my thing is, I think that they have their heart in the right place, which is good. And I do think that they've got a couple million kids and other people who are really jazzed up about this and are working at their their college campus to get something done, which is also good. But the challenge I have is a few things, right? One is is that during the South Africa apartheid movement, the the 
the global economy and the global money flows were a lot sort of tighter than they are now, right? So, so back then, if the U.S. didn't invest in South Africa, it wasn't really easy for South Africa to get money from other places. Where today, they'll just turn to, you know, like they would just turn to China to get money. Um, I think the other thing is that, so the fossil fuel industry in general is hugely profitable. And so if ExxonMobil stock goes down by 10%, ExxonMobil will just buy back their stock. They're not going to stop investing in, in the future. And there's lots of other people that can invest there. And then the third thing is, is that when you look at all these divestment pledges that people have made, they're not pledging to put that money into clean energy. They're just pledging to sell fossil fuel stocks. And so if you sell fossil fuel stocks, you're not really hurting the fossil fuel industry. And then you're not actually pledging to put all that money into clean energy. I just, I think it's a really gimmicky way to get people all excited, but it's not really effective in winning the war on climate. Well, I agree with you and disagree with you. First, I agree that it's probably not going to be that effective. Talking to fund managers and people in the financial community, they say, oh, we see a slight uptick in interest in fossil fuel-free portfolios. People are asking us about the, about it, but none of them believe that this is going to have a major impact in the financial bottom line of fossil fuel companies. Now, is it gimmicky? Yes, but I think gimmicks are effective in changing the uh, discussion around certain issues. Quite frankly, for the last couple of years before activists started embarking on this divestment movement, there was very little enthusiasm for climate change issues generally. And now what you see is the press is talking about this campaign more. You do see a lot more enthusiasm. You see billionaire activists like Tom Steyer say that he's going to divest a large portion of his portfolio from uh, certain fossil fuel companies. And that stimulates a discussion and puts pressure on People in the public eye, politicians, f financiers, and others to to act, and that to me is the is the benefit of this campaign. Well, it also brings bring this to the. I think it brings it to the attention of the boards of trustees of the schools, and those folks are usually pretty wealthy, pretty successful corporate people. So I think it, it raises the awareness, not just with the students, but with the people who are the trustees of these universities. I mean, the issue is like all these university funds, as Jigger says, the, it's complicated because the funds are pooled. They all, you know, it's, it's pretty complicated to try to tease out what you would have to divest. Um, one alternative, I guess it's been raised, is that is to use any profits made from fossil investments that are pretty successful uh, to reinvest those back into clean energy or local efficiency projects. So, you know, that's another way you could you could do that, I would I would imagine. But what do you think about the argument itself, though? Catherine? I mean, this is my problem with the intellectual dissonance, right? I'm going to Bill McKinnon, extraordinary individual. And he is giving me advice about investing. He is saying to me, Jigger, I have done the math, and I am so freaking smart that I am telling you right now that you should sell all your fossil fuel stocks before the stock prices go down, because at some point we're going to win on the policy side, and we're going to force these people to leave the carbon in the ground. Instead, why wouldn't he say, you know, fossil fuels, according to the National Academy of Sciences, caused Americans last year to lose 5 million workdays? It killed 30,100 people. 
It created 200,000 asthma visits to the hospital. You should, st- you should divest from fossil fuels just because you don't like killing people. That's a moral message. That's a South yeah, African that's right. apartheid message. Yeah, and that's what a lot of the the faith community is looking at it from a much more look at the moral standpoint, where this is about um, you know protecting our planet and you know being good stewards. And so I think that they're they're using that argument um, with the with the large churches divesting. Um, I think that you know you can use both. You can use the numbers side, and you know there's this report from the Institute and Faculty of Actuarials saying that the environmental risk outweighs the other risks in, you know, in your investment. Well, I mean, those are the kinds of numbers that, and the actuarials are the guys and the, um, all those are the ones that we need to look at the numbers of too, not just, not just take, you know, there, there are a bunch of different messages we can, we can use here. And I think it just depends on, on, um, as Jigger says, what the audience is. And let's be clear, Bill McKibben is not going out there giving anyone financial advice. Having gone to his Do the Math tour, he does talk in moral terms. He talks about what's happening to ecosystems on the planet. He talks about the potential for drought to impact farmers, the melting of the Arctic. And he does couch this in moral terms, similar to what we saw with the the anti-apartheid movement. So I do disagree with you there. And I have not heard Bill McKibben really make true financial advice. He's trying to put a drumbeat on this moral argument. And while I don't think that this fossil fuel divestment campaign is going to have any material impact on the bottom line of fossil fuel companies, I still am bullish on it creating a message. And and I'm not really the activist type, which is probably why I, I kind of got out of the climate advocacy side of things and and got back into business reporting. But I will say, I think that there is a strong role for campaigns like this to mobilize activists to create a new conversation that wasn't there before. And I think that this is a new conversation. It's fundamentally new and different than what we've had over the last couple of years. And people are paying attention. I think that there's a a net positive there. Yeah, look, I I mean, I'm willing to to agree with you on that. I mean, I'm on the board of Greenpeace, and I really believe strongly that that the moral message piece is missing, frankly, that like we actually have a bunch of folks who are pro clean tech. We don't have enough people who are anti fossil fuels. And I do think that if we can get the intensity level up such that the number of people who are anti fossil fuels are just as passionate as the people who are climate change deniers, I think we can win this battle. But right now, the climate change deniers are far more passionate than the than the uh, than the moral side of our our uh, our movement. So let's wrap up here and um, let's all tell our listeners something they don't know. Uh, Catherine, what do you have for us for our final segment? Yeah, so the Department of Energy just released a report today. Um, the U.S. energy sector vulnerabilities to climate change and extreme weather, which is really interesting. And they have an interactive uh, map on their energy.gov website that shows which climatic conditions um, are prevalent in different parts of the country. So you can click on it and see kind of where the vulnerabilities are. And it's pretty interesting stuff. And the report is interesting, too. Uh, it, it deals with the grid. Um, you know, the you know, higher temperatures on our electric grid um, make transmitting electrons much less efficient. And, and so, you know, higher temperatures, it's not just storms knocking poles over and flooding transformers. It's really the temperatures have something to do with it, too. So they kind of cover a lot of 
territory with this report, I think it's worth taking a look at. Yeah, love this angle. We'll be writing a piece on it. I think it's one of the undercovered stories when it comes to climate change impacts. Jigger, what about you? So I think that, you know, you talked about this little um, earlier, Stephen, about the O-Power and um, um, Nest thermostat, you know, folks who are talking about their uh, their uh, demand response programs. But what's fascinating to me is the buzz that I'm getting into my inbox now from people who are looking to control their um, their energy use at home from their iPhone is pretty cool. And so now California and Texas have mandated that the electric utility companies release the Zigbee function in their smart meters such that for 80 bucks, you can actually um, start reading the Zigbee from your smart meter and, you know, channeling that data into the cloud, analyzing it, showing people how to save energy, and then, you know, using that data to, to push alerts to people through their phone is exciting. And right now there are hundreds of people's, people that are doing this, but I think that number is going to be thousands of people by the end of 2014. Yeah, that's the stuff right there. That's, that's the, those are the technologies that we were talking about that's going to continue to drive U.S. efficiency. Yeah, that's awesome. I want one. <laughs> They'll soon be ubiquitous. So I'm going to finish off with some sad news. Um, as a lot of people now in the energy and climate community may know, uh, Randy Udall passed away last week while hiking in the mountains of Wyoming. Uh, Randy is, of course, the brother of Mark Udall, the senator from Colorado. Um, but Randy is is really well known in the environmental scene uh, and, but many people might not know the extent of his career. So Auden Schendler of the Aspen Skiing Company, he's a sustainability guru at Aspen Skiing Company, had a great remembrance on climate progress this week uh, or last week in which he, he pointed out that Randy helped create Colorado's first green power pricing program. He helped develop one of the first carbon taxes in the U.S., and even worked with Bill Koch, one of the infamous Koch brothers, to build a waste methane to energy plant at one of his coal mines. So I didn't know Randy very well personally. Um, I only met him briefly in the past, but his reputation loomed large, and I was really sad to hear of his passing. So uh, I just felt like people should know about what he accomplished. And for more on his career, you can go over to uh, our website, Green Tech Media, where we'll link to the remembrance uh, that Auden Schendler wrote last week. So we'll wrap up the podcast with that. Um, we'll provide links to most of the stories that we discussed at Green Tech Media this week. Don't forget that this show is available on iTunes, so you can subscribe to us there. And don't forget to rate the show and leave your comments. You can also use other podcast listening tools by subscribing to our RSS feed, and the link to that is on our podcast page. Again, greentechmedia.com. Finally, if you have story ideas, send them over to me, Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We definitely want to hear from our listeners. So we'll say our goodbyes until next week. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, always a pleasure. Thank you. Mine as well. And Jigger Shaw, great chatting with you this week. Keep up the rage. <laughs> with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We look forward to being with you next week.